Go Loud presents Magnified with Matt Cooper. Sponsored by Strategic Power Connect. Renewable energy designed to suit your business needs. Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect. Go Loud. Sounds better with us. Hello and welcome to this latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper, the podcast series of lengthy interviews that I conduct at my kitchen table at home with support from Strategic Power Connect. This is a little bit of a different Magnified podcast. If you've heard any of them to date or if you go and have a listen to any of those that you haven't heard, they're mainly interviews with people about their careers and how they got to what they're, where they are and what they want to do in the future. But today's is a little bit different because it's about a person's job and what he's trying to do in that new job as Ireland and Britain editor of the Irish Times. And in particular, a project that the newspaper has taken on in relation to common ground between this island and Britain and the future of the relationship between the people of the two islands and particularly on this island when we talk so much about the potential for a united Ireland. Mark Hennessy is an old friend of mine for many years. He's from Cork as well. He has been a senior reporter in the Irish Examiner and then moved to the Irish Times where he has been news editor until recently and was previously the London editor. So he really knows the topics that we're going to discuss about the future on this island. So again, thanks to our friends who supported us in Strategic Power Connect and I hope you enjoy this slightly different edition of Magnified with my guest, Mark Hennessy. Mark Hennessy, thank you for joining me here for the Magnified podcast. And I hope you won't be offended if, unlike other podcasts, I concentrate more on the project you're doing and the job you're doing rather than on you personally. Because I'm very interested in the Irish Times project Common Ground that you're in charge of as Ireland and Britain editor. Because there's an awful lot of talk of United Ireland recently and indeed Mary Lou Macdonald, the Sinn Féin leader, recently referred to it as being within touching distance. So is that what you're at? Is this the Irish Times preparing us for United Ireland? No, we're not uh, as such. We're, we're, uh, we're not, uh, to be frank. Uh, the project is much more nuanced than that. In fact, if we wanted an easy sell for the audience, that's exactly what we would have created, uh, which is a, un- a United Ireland uh, project. This is much more nuanced, uh, largely because we think we would be doing a disservice both to the issue and to our readers if we were to just take a simplistic approach to it. There are four strands to this particular project. One is the North-South relationship, defined as broadly as it is possible to uh, to be defined and particularly in terms of the relationships that exist and more accurately don't exist between people on both sides of the island. Because contrary to whatever uh, we tell ourselves, we know very little about each other. And, you know, the majority of traffic coming uh, south on the M1 uh, is coming to Dublin Airport uh, or to IKEA. Uh, The majority of the traffic going to Belfast, uh, as uh, much of it as there is, uh, you'll find uh, clustered around the Titanic water. You know, 25 years on, um, we haven't actually largely developed the relationship in any significant way. Yes, there's the five, ten mile traffic either side of the border that's going on all over the place uh, and certainly there's more of that. But in terms of people from Cork knowing people in Tyrone and people in... Well, well, actually, before you go on to the other strands, let's just actually examine that a little bit because 
you just say people from Cork now and people from Tyrone. You grew up near Mitchellstown in North Cork. When was your first time north of the border? After I became a reporter in my 20s. And only because you were a reporter? Probably, yeah. Yeah, probably. I remember covering the Drum Cree uh, years, um, which probably the single, one of the single most ex- miserable experiences in many ways. Um, and I remember on one occasion I was writing for the Examiner at that point and uh, it was the year of the Quinn's uh, killings. Uh, the These three, are the children who the were bite to death. Yeah, uh, awful dreadful, dreadful uh, week in every shape and form. And I wrote a long piece for the examiner, a few thousand words, which we published on the Monday morning, which is not something they would have done um, if too frequently at the time. And I remember going back to my hometown um, the following weekend and literally it was like Livingston had returned from Africa. You know, I mean, it was that strange uh, to people. And most of the time, you know, people don't talk to either you or me about our jobs, you know. It, it just doesn't happen. Those kind of vacations uh, were, were notable. Um, you know, it, it, the only time I ever saw real fear in the South was the the, the morning after Gracie. You know, people really... Remind rapping. people of that. That was the time that, of the World Cup of 94, wasn't it? No, no. That, oh, sorry, that, 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 different, that was a different atrocity. It, it was sorry. a different... The, the one in Derry in 95 where they came into the pub and, um, and left, I think, five people dead, particularly... Sorry, uh, I was mistaken. That was Locken Island memory playing tricks. Locken Island was 94. Uh, God knows there, there have been so many of these uh, tragedies and, and, and brutalities over the years. So we don't know each other. And so there's things that we can do whereby we... Not just give people a platform to say what they want to say, because to an extent, with an awful lot of interviewees, most of us in the trade will have a fair idea of what uh, interview X is going to produce, but largely to try and explore why and what in your background leads you to say what it is that you now say. So that uh, people, you know, in Skibbereen who are listening to or reading uh, somebody from the Orange Order or whatever, they wouldn't necessarily agree with them anymore at the end of the interview, but they might have a better idea as to why that person looks at the world in the way that they do. It's this factors in or takes in the partitionist attitude that perhaps has developed in this island over the last century. And you're right, I think it is interesting to see about the lack of interest that perhaps there is at times by people in the South and what's going on in the North. I'll just give you an example from my own time when I was editor of the Sunday Tribune during the 1990s into the early 2000s. We had a sort of a figure worked out that any time on the front page that we had the lead as a story about the North, about the peace process, and we had some major big scoops at the time with the likes of Ed Maloney as our Northern editor, we reckoned the sales of the paper in the South fell by about 10% that week, that people just were almost turned off by what they saw on the front page of the paper. And we very much that people in the South, a lot of them did care above what was going on in the North and regarded as important. But for an awful lot of mm. people, they just turned it off completely. Yeah. Has that the, changed? Uh, no, I don't think it does. The, the people who do care, care, care a great deal. And, and the majority don't care at all. And the majority knows less about Northern Ireland today than it probably did uh, in uh, 98, uh, at the time of the Good Friday Agreement. And... It, you know, that doesn't matter if uh, we're all happy being in our respective camps. But if we have this uh, debate about a United Ireland, and as I said, the United Ireland issue is one part of this particular project because there's a very large East-West element to it because we've learned after the years of Brexit that the opinion of some stupid 
sod in Southampton has a way of completely upending all of our lives so we have to try and take things uh, uh, together in a, a, in a collective way because we do influence each other um, but if you go back to the issue of of relationships we have a we, we have a public declaration where you know close to 70% of people in the south when they're asked in opinion polls say uh, that they want a united Ireland uh, then when you start teasing into, you know, even the simplest issues like flags and anthems and just the basics, um, those figures drop, gets more complicated when you talk about the money that would be needed to pay for it, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, if people think they're the biggest issues that we're going to face going into a debate like this, uh, then we're kidding ourselves. And th- the issue of a, a United Ireland referendum is a real and centred issue in today's politics and the politics of every day in the next five or ten years, even if the referendum is 40 years down the road. Because people will make decisions today in, in the, on, on the understanding that they think X or Y or Z is going to happen. And one of the things that was quite striking uh, over the last few days and the uh, events in Stormont was the different tone that was taken by Michelle O'Neill compared with the rather triumphalist um, uh, uh, actions of Mary Lou Macdonald, which did not go down very well. And it's striking the number of people I've heard in the South who comment, who noticed what she'd done. Now, I'm not sure necessarily that they uh, have uh, positive or negative opinions, but it was quite striking how many people actually noticed it. Well, just a couple of things on that. Um, Mary... Mary Lou Macdonald's comments, yes, did get an awful lot of attention because at a time when Stormont was been restored and a power sharing which they'd looked for, she was treating it merely as a stepping stone to the next aspiration. Michelle O'Neill is an interesting figure in that she seems to have an extraordinary emotional intelligence for a politician. And this goes further, even if you consider that she, the expression of sympathy to Prince Charles after his mother died when he went to Northern Ireland 18 months ago, turning up at the coronation, expressing sympathy for him on his illness. You know, good manners, good neighbourly manners, but something that was beyond an awful lot of people in Sinn Féin previously. There's no doubt uh, and and good manners will take people a a long way in all aspects of our lives and she deserves credit for that. Although you could contrast the public declarations that were made by her which were welcome at the time of the uh, Queen's funeral with the actions that were happening on local councils across the north where people from Sinn Féin uh, were objecting to any local expression of sadness by um, uh, Protestant uh, uh, But then that would suggest that she was showing leadership and that was certainly... Yeah, yeah, you you could say that, but you could equally say that there are two different messages, that there's one message for uh, the top-line international audience. Uh, Is that the constructive ambiguity, which I think has become something that has really helped Irish politics progress in the last few decades? You you could argue that, but I mean, you could equally argue 25 years after uh, the Good Friday Agreement that having uh, a greater expression of Protestant identity in Northern Ireland at a time like the Queen's funeral should be something that should be uh, um, acceptable, tolerated, or at, you know, or at least ignored by those who don't like it, uh, and that didn't exactly uh, necessarily happen. So you know we have a long uh, journey to go uh, before 
identities are fully respected on all sides, just to emphasise that. Well, absolutely. But you sort of spoke there about a referendum possible in about 40 years' time. Mary Lou MacDonald is talking about within a decade. Yeah, and you could talk, you can easily talk within a decade. And and Bertie Ahern uh, has mused uh, on the prospect of it happening within seven or eight years, if memory serves me right. Uh, And there are circumstances in which that could happen. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, there's a construct being put on it by some people who are... uh, uh, quite properly want to, to see a referendum happen, who are now looking at polling figures and saying uh, that they indicate that there is support. The Good Friday Agreement is clear, uh, even though the test is a subjective test by the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland at the time, uh, that person can only make a, a determination to call a referendum if they have reason to believe that a referendum once put would be won. And in Northern Ireland at the moment, I don't think there, there, there aren't polls that in any sort of consistent way would give an expectation that that is the case. And until that changes, then... Well, excuse me a little bit of a detour on this, but I think it may be relevant. And I know you don't share my obsession with sport. You're interested, but you don't share it. But I often wonder, how are we going to get to a united Ireland if we can't even have a united Ireland football team? You know, yeah. You can, I mean, that, that that is true and clearly we'd be a much uh, stronger outfit if we were playing as an All-Ireland team. I think the rugby is is a better example. Um, you know, you take somebody like Trevor Ringland, one of the, the greatest uh, uh, players to ever don a green jersey, uh, father of a senior RUC man, uh, very uh, uh, honourable officer by all accounts, spent his entire career under threat of assassination uh, by the IRA, um, family routine, checking the cars, all the usual things that so many families uh, had to do. And he would come down uh, to Lansdowne Road and stand for uh, our own Levine, you know, and, you know, polite man uh, and would always show proper respect understanding that probably, you know, five or ten percent of people in the uh, stadium understood that it was actually rather odd that we were asking a man to stand for an anthem that was not his. And if we're going to be in the South, if we are the ones who are uh, loudly declaring our uh, preference for a united Ireland, then that comes at a cost. And if you are wooing, you come with chocolates and flowers. You don't come, you can't have a, a, there are too many people in the South who, in a very simplistic way, see a United Ireland as being a bigger version of 26. If that is were to be the outcome, that would be disastrous for each and every single one of us. There is no way that that will be a content and happy and, uh, and warm society. And I'll come back to that in a second, but something else that strikes me again to carry on the sporting theme, you mentioned the likes of Trevor England from a previous generation of rugby players. The Ireland team that beat France last Friday night in Marseille where the team is now 23 players because the subs are as important. For the first time, there wasn't a single Ulster player amongst the 23. And I was thinking about that a little bit as well. And there aren't that many contenders from Ulster to get onto that Irish 23 at the moment as well, which is perhaps a sign that at a time when rugby is thriving throughout the rest of the island of Ireland, it's struggling in Ulster. And the Ulster Gaelic football teams are those who now are maybe expected to dominate 
with only the exceptions of Dublin and Kerry. And I was just wondering, is sports showing a change in the structure as well of the way things are happening in the North, that GA has prospered in recent decades, Gaelic football, yeah. whereas rugby is starting perhaps to suffer a little bit? Well, as you rightly pointed out earlier, um, you wouldn't normally come to me for sporting, uh, a, a sporting <laughs> opinion. But, but sorry, the point well, is you know, one I, I, think it's, I think it's fair, but I don't think, just to go back on, on the point, I don't think anybody would argue that uh, the absence of an Ulster player is an expression of sectarianism. It's got nothing to do oh, with God, that. No, I'm not saying it, that no, at all. No, no, yeah. no, I know you're not saying that, but I think it's worth, the point is it is actually worth making that that's not what it is. It's a very cold-hearted judgment on a bunch of players and who should be on the squad and who shouldn't be on the squad. Um, I'm not expert enough to... Uh, Sorry, the- there was a time when it used to be said that there were players from Ulster put on the squad simply to make sure that there was a representation, that it oh, was yeah. a political yeah. statement. Well, to be fair, I think that worked um, for all of the provinces, but it certainly did uh, happen in the case of Ulster, so there's no doubt about that. Um, but and there's equally no doubt that if there was to be, as I said, you know, unity or, or some greater cooperation in terms of a, an All-Ireland soccer team. Um, but there is no doubt that uh, nationalists are and people of a, a, a Republican bent are much more confident. I was at a, something a few months ago with some young loyalists and it was really striking. You know, each of them remarkable people in their own particular life stories, articulate, intelligent, engaged, um, wonderful in, in so many ways. But the world through their eyes is quite threatening. You know, they see difficulties and, and, and challenges uh, uh, to both their identity, to their economic status, to the future. Whereas if you were to take an equivalent bunch of people coming from a nationalist background in Northern Ireland, you're going to get a much more confident, much more outgoing um, expression. So, you know, there is no doubt that there are changes. And those changes, as I say, could accelerate in a way whereby a referendum comes quickly. But I don't think that that's really what we should necessarily be concentrating upon now because there's a huge amount of work and hopefully with Common Ground we'll get the opportunity to explore some of it. There are issues in terms of identity and relationships, uh, the challenges that would need to be approached about any form of, of constitutional change or change shy of a, a constitutional uh, alteration because there are a whole lot of things that we could do in terms of cross-border cooperation that could be you know transformative if we were to get our act together and if we were to get agreement. Yeah and that brings me to I suppose the east-west relationship as well which is another part of your common ground and you talked about loyalists and worried about their economic prospects and yet it would appear that in the desire to prove themselves to be British the DUP have effectively possibly sundered a magnificent opportunity available to the people of Northern Ireland to enjoy the best of both worlds, to have free access to the European Union, to the single market, while at the same time having access unfettered to the British market. But in this desire to prove themselves to be better Brits, the DUP and its elements of unionism have effectively put that at risk for themselves. Why? Because of a very simplistic um, uh, reading of the issue of Brexit, and it's reflective of the kind of people that they knock around with when they're in Westminster, you know, uh, who are on what you might call the kind of the truss uh, sort of wings. They're on, they're on the political spectrum, shall we say? Well, you know, you you could argue that, but 
it didn't make any sense for for Northern Ireland to uh, to support Brexit. It didn't make any sense for the DUP to be in the vanguard of that, even to the extent that they were involved in campaigning in Britain itself. The famous Metro ads, uh, which were paid for in advance in the in, in the in the days ahead, none of that made any sense. All of that was said to them at the time, and none of uh, that that they listened to. And having done that, they then pressed for the toughest of all forms of Brexit in the aftermath which again made no sense and now there's is a the, form of self-harm it is a form of self-harm uh, but you know it, I remember saying to one in my previous life uh, working in London for the Irish Times, I remember in one rather cranky exchange uh, with somebody from the DUP, you know, making the point to them that, you know, at the end of the day, it would be worthwhile realising that they, the people around them in uh, Port Cullis House and the, in the Palace of Westminster regarded them as much of a mick as they regarded me. You know, and what was the reaction to you for saying uh, you know, that? Sometimes you're never sure whether you get any reaction at all, but because uh, that that would require engagement uh, in a way. Um, but it is a very common trait. Uh, the DUP um, didn't represent their people uh, in any coherent way. Yes, there are issues about. Um, uh, the way in which uh, the single market will work. There's no doubt that if you were to be a, a constitutional um, finicky uh, on the constitutional question, that, that there are issues. But the position of Northern Ireland has been all has been different for more than 25 years. It's the only part of the United Kingdom that has permission to secede in a referendum uh, if the people living in that part uh, of uh, uh, the United Kingdom desire uh, to do so. So its status is is always different and, and has been in a formal legal sense for a quarter of a century. You know, the same right doesn't exist for people living in Cornwall and okay. there are quite a few. But you'll come back to me there what you said about the people that the DUP sort of hung out with in Westminster. How long were you the London correspondent of the Irish Times? What years? Like seven years. I was there uh, 2009 through to just before Brexit. Okay, so you would have seen the development of the Brexit lobby in the British Parliament and you've been around Westminster a lot. And in recent days I've been fascinated to read all the details of the latest lunatic fringe of the Tory party involved in popular conservatism and trying to create a Trump-like approach with Liz Truss and Jacob Rees-Moggs leading this idea that somehow, despite the fact that the Conservatives have been in power since 2010, they have been captured by some sort of left-wing lunatic mob uh, which has stopped them doing anything that the public really wants. And this seems to be the type of thing that the... DUP has associated itself with. Now, I'm not sure whether popular conservatism is going to be their thing, but those type of people are the people that they've associated themselves with. Mm. Why? What has the attraction been to them? I think it's probably people who think in terms of absolutes um, and and see things in black and white. Um, You know, that streak in British politics has grown. I remember going to a UKIP conference in Skegness in Lincolnshire in uh, the autumn conference in October. And trust me, you know, autumn uh, or October in Skegness is a declaration of activity on the part of a reporter because it's a particularly miserable place at that time of year. And up to, this was 2009, and up to four o'clock on the Saturday afternoon, I was the only press person who was present from anywhere. 
uh, until uh, an ITN uh, crew from Humberside uh, arrived and Michael White from The Guardian. And uh, surrounded by half colonels who were mildly bemused at the presence of a paddy. Uh, perfectly polite and actually wonderfully welcoming in so many ways, but clearly actually rather taken aback as to why I was there. And uh, I had to make the point to them, you know, the opinions of people like you have implications for my country. That's why I'm here. And as we saw seven, six, seven years later, uh, we saw exactly where that uh, led. While, you know, UKIP, uh, you know, never won seats in any significant uh, sense. They were representative of a mood. And I remember saying to people at the time, you, we needed to to watch them, not because they were going to take over number 10, but that rather that they were going to change uh, the conversation uh, in British politics. And they and others uh, did do that. And then you have, you know, there's a poisonous element in British politics um, that is really quite extraordinary, the way of the role of right-wing think tanks and people like that and the extraordinary coverage that they get uh, across British media. And then you have the whole Russian uh, element um, and the way in which um, uh, Moscow has effectively infiltrated the Conservative Party. And it is quite staggering to see uh, at some of these things where uh, you, you um, when I was there, you know, you'd have a function and you'd have a string of Russian billionaires in the room. And, you know, the whole thing was just being done in open. And and and, and, and people who are uh, Tory MPs who are also on consultancy contracts for company X, Y or Z. You the know? same people who were going on about the desire for sovereignty yeah. and not be ruled by the European Union yeah. effectively allow themselves to be beholden to the money of Russians. Well, I, I'm sure the vast majority of them didn't see it like that, that they saw an alliance of opinions as distinct from um, anything else. But the outcome of it is uh, has been disastrous. There's no doubt whatsoever that uh, Moscow had a role in the Brexit referendum. I mean, that's not paranoia. Um, you know, the, the, the chortling that took place in uh, uh, in the Russian embassy the morning after uh, talking to people who were there at the time was extraordinary. And the, the great line from uh, one of the people in Putin's uh, entourage uh, that they'd put their uh, the boot on the throat uh, of London and it wouldn't rise for years to come. You know, so you can't say that they were uh, the the only people who brought it about. They weren't, but they certainly had a role. We'd probably never know to what degree, but they did have a role. This interview is more about your role than it is about you yourself. But just remind me. Did you have any interactions with Boris Johnson from his time as a journalist or his time as a politician? Uh, he was in, I, I was part of the Brussels press corps for a couple of years and I was at the lowly end of it, you know, kid in the block and all the rest of it. So guys like him were the um, uh, the creatures close to the sun. So I wouldn't claim to uh, know him personally, but uh, I do remember uh, a situation where uh, his reputation in Brussels was just appalling because like there's there's one thing for people to exaggerate stories and unfortunately there is a certain type of reporter uh, thankfully not too many but there are some uh, who could be uh, re- uh, legitimately accused of same and then there are people like Boris who simply made it up and you know you see Max Athings who was his editor in the Telegraph at the time now in the years afterwards condemning 
um, uh, Johnson for all sorts of misbehavior. You know, Hastings published him and he published him on the front page and he published him in ways uh, where uh, it was damaging uh, to on every front. I mean, largely for the fact that it was simply untrue. And I remember, you know, being with uh, British colleagues from Fleet Street Papers late at night, uh, maybe getting a meal or whatever, and there'd be a frantic call from some news desk in London because the first editions had come out and Boris had yet another bloody story about bendy bananas or whatever it is. And the Brussels correspondent for the other papers would be patiently trying to explain uh, to the news editor in, in London that the story was nonsense and it shouldn't be followed. And it is the worst possible position for any reporter to be in when you're trying to explain to a news editor uh, why you didn't write the story that somebody else has decided to put on the front page. You know? Yeah, because they assume that because the paper has published yeah, it that exactly. it's correct and you've missed it, yeah, even exactly. though it's actually a fabrication. We'll yeah. get back to newspapers in a little bit. But also, I just want to ask you about the relationship. As Again, as I emphasise, as you're the Ireland and Britain editor, these are the things that you would be following at present. And the Legacy Act that's been brought in, the the desire of elements again of the British establishment to brush over what happened in the past in Ireland and how serious then as a result of that is the rift that has been reported between the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and R.T. Shukli over Adkar? Well the rift is genuine uh, there's no doubt about that uh, and London is um, well genuinely taken aback at the decision to uh, take it to, to court with the Irish decision the Irish decision to go to the European court frankly what Dublin could have done about it uh, done otherwise uh, it is rather hard for me to understand you know the presentation of this in Britain is that it's all about protecting some 85 year old uh, retired para uh, who was 18 in, uh, in dark days in, in Fermanagh or Tyrone or wherever it was and made a split decision and may have made the wrong call or whatever it is uh, and that somebody like that shouldn't be faced with, with prosecution and that's the way in which it's been presented to a British audience and that's nonsense you know, the reality of this is that this is about uh, the British government wanting to ensure that state collusion isn't revealed, organised state collusion as distinct from individual bad acts by individual bad actors or mistakes. And, you know, in the aftermath of this that they, they threw at Dublin, well, you lot haven't uh, looked at your own history and there's loads of things that could be um, uh, investigated uh, south of the border. And there's some validity to that, but nowhere comparable because whilst there were individual bad actors within the Gardaí perhaps and maybe elsewhere who were sharing information with the uh, provisional IRA or other, they were individuals and they were rare. What you didn't have was the state involvement uh, in orchestrating actions. And there's no doubt uh, that that happened uh, in, in Northern Ireland and it happened for a very long period of time. And you know, where this ends up, uh, it, it seems very difficult to, to see, uh, and I'm not a legal person, but it does seem uh, difficult to believe that uh, the Irish challenge, should it get to a full hearing, um, uh, that it wouldn't win. Because there's no doubt that what the, the Brits have done is actually breaking fairly basic principles of international law. So how remarkable is it, given that? Leo Varadkar and Rishi Sunak didn't even appear in public together at Stormont of the weekend. We've seen photographs of Rishi Sunak and Michelle O'Neill hugging. Yeah, um, they do seem to have got their nose out of joint uh, that um, Leo, or at least the way in which it was briefed uh, to uh, 
people in the, uh, the Belfast media was that London was irritated because Dublin kind of came onto the parade. Now, frankly, I'm not quite sure how uh, it could have been done in in any other way. I mean, they are joint guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement. This is the institutions are key elements of uh, the agreement. Why would an Irish Taoiseach not be there? The relationship between Ireland and Britain, because even in recent days we've had the death of uh, John Bruton and lovely tribute paid by John Major, who would have been very, very close to Albert Reynolds in particular. And then you had the relationships between Tony Blair and Bertie O'Hearn, and you would have had Gordon Brown as well. And even when it came to our financial crisis, um, when we we had the IMF come in to rescue us, we did also benefit from loans from Britain under David Cameron's government at the time, which, which were repaid subsequently. Yeah, to be fair, uh, had, which had more to do with... British uh, self-interest. With British self-interest because of British banks uh, and, their, and their presence uh, and exposure to Ireland. But in difficult times, it seems that we had better relationships between our political leaders. I mean, is that another consequence of Brexit and now Britain putting itself outside the EU that it is making relationships across the islands between the governments more difficult? Yeah, well, I'm not sure that we can lay everything at the door of uh, Sunak. Um, well, I mean, I'm even going back to his predecessors and try to list them off. Theresa May. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, no, that, 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 that Boris Johnson. That, that is true. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, people on the Northern Irish Unionist side and some in Britain have been really, really irked by um, many of the statements of Veradkar and, to a lesser extent, Simon Coveney. Um, whereas Michal Martin has taken a much more emollient uh, line in some ways. Um, so there, there are times when Veradkar has said things where. One could reasonably ask, looking on as the audience, what were you trying to achieve by saying what you've just said? And if you don't know what it is that you're trying to achieve, then perhaps it would be best if you hadn't said it. Uh, there isn't any value in, um, uh, in, in always being the one to point out the obvious, even if one is right. So there's, you know, we can't say that in any human relationship that the blame uh, lies on on one side. If you look at the way in which uh, Bertie Ahern um, uh, as Taoiseach, uh, you know, and, and that was a, an extraordinary period of closeness where there were things done by uh, Blair because he wanted to ensure that uh, Bertie uh, was looked after on point A or B or C, which wouldn't have happened had that uh, relationship not been as strong as it was. And trust is required uh, in those situations. Uh, Bruton was, uh, you know, a very, very, very fine man um, and in some ways has been uh, traduced um, by people uh, because of some of his political views and, you know, some of them in terms of the Redmondite view of, of the rising and all the rest of it, you know, people can, can argue about. Um, but his instincts at key times uh, during the mid-90s, uh, even if it wasn't brilliantly expressed uh, sometimes, uh, was actually p- pretty sound and in alliance with, with Dick Spring. Uh, whose uh, performance on, on this issue over the years uh, has always or was always pretty stellar. Um, so there's no doubt that we're, we're in a different situation, and we're in a different situation where 
all of the benefits that were gained from years of Irish and British ministers and officials knocking into each other every day of the week in Brussels corridors and having the coffee and maybe going for lunch or whatever it is, or in some cases simply being the only guys in the room who didn't speak another language and naturally gravitating towards each other which is sadly too often the case, um, that, you know, those kind of relations uh, were of value. And now that's not happening. And if we're trying to put in place uh, bilateral um, uh, relationships in the British-Irish Intergovernmental Council, uh, Brown came in 2009 from memory. Uh, Sunak came to the dinner uh, last year, and there's other than that, there's never been a British Prime Minister at it. Uh, Clegg used to do it uh, in most of my years. Uh, in, as the Deputy Prime Minister. As Deputy Prime Minister. So there's always an issue of getting proper London engagement when it's a bilateral directly with Ireland. Because they simply, it's inherent in the relationship. They're up there and they see us down here. We've never had that relationship of parity. And that's always a problem. And it's, it, most nine times out of ten, it is not meant with any offence. It's just their view of the natural order of things. Okay, I want to just move this slightly differently for the rest of this interview. And you and I are of a similar age and we both started out in newspapers and... I've moved into other areas as well as with newspapers, but you've stuck very much with it. And I know you deeply love newspapers. Mm. But what is the future for newspapers? How important is a project like Common Ground for maintaining the relevance of newspapers at a time when people are getting their news through other means? Yeah, well, I mean, if we... Sorry, and also when they often distrust the media possibly because of the type of stories that the likes of Boris Johnson once used to put into newspapers. And funnily enough, now, and ironically, it's the people like Boris Johnson who use that to condemn fake news. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, first of all, the the business of journalism is not without flaw, and all of us uh, in it uh, should be perhaps more uh, acknowledging of that in many ways. Uh, I mean, I I have ink in my veins uh, uh, to a large degree, but I don't uh, see uh, the past... In, in a rose-tinted way. Um, I think if we were making life easy for ourselves, we wouldn't be doing common ground. Uh, this is a project that is going to take a lot of resources. It's um, There's a lot of effort has been put into it uh, over the last uh, number of months. Um, extraordinary support from the editor, uh, Rune McCormick. And all of that matters. And we think that there's something that we can add to the pot that will help the pool of impartial uh, information where we tease out the issues, where we give over time everybody on all sides of the argument uh, their spake and that we get to a situation where if we end up in years to come with a referendum that we will have played some role in ensuring that people going to the ballot box will be better informed whatever decision they make. This is interesting. This is public service journalism, right? There's no immediate financial return to be made in it. This is not something I'd imagine that the accountants in the Irish Times are jumping up and down celebrating because there is a cost Mm. involved in it. But how important is it actually to secure the future of newspapers like the Irish Times that it does things like that, that doesn't necessarily generate clicks 
and immediate advertising revenue? No. Well, I mean, you know, we don't do clickbait. You know, I, the definition of clickbait being, do you need to open the, the story to understand what the headline has just told you, right? Uh, you know, we don't do headlines like that. Um, you know, we give you enough information in the headline to decide whether you want to open it uh, or not. Um, and, uh, you know, there is a trivialization of media going on. There's no doubt about that. There's an increased specialization uh, going on. So the people who are better, who are informed, have the opportunity to be better informed than they ever were before because of the panoply of information sources uh, that are out there for those who are uh, sufficiently uh, attuned uh, to it. And then for everybody else or, uh, who, who don't want to be involved, you know, you can spend your life scrolling through Facebook or Instagram videos of cats if you so wish. And, you know, that is people's choice. And people will do whatever they want to do. But, you know... This isn't self-interest. I'm at a stage in my career where, you know, to go off and do something else if it came to it. I mean, this isn't about wanting to, to say that any of us have a right to exist because we don't have a right to exist. But the public has a call to make in terms of the quality of information that it gets. And people know who the Irish Times are and the other major Irish media outlets and I'm not saying that all of us get things right all the time we don't there are things that we miss there are things we don't cover that we should cover there are things that we should have covered earlier than we did so I'm accepting of all of the criticisms but you know where we are and you know where we are the day after we've done something that you don't like you know I mean what I increasingly see is people who are getting uh, opinionated about something that they've spotted on Twitter or one of the other social media feeds and you ask them where they got it from and they don't know they can't tell you who told them now I mean if you translate that back into your ordinary life there is none of us who would go to the pub and listen to an extraordinary story that besmirched somebody's reputation or was whatever um without having some understanding of who the person telling it was. And we would make a judgment on the credibility of the information depending on who that person was standing at the bar counter. If you take a very that simple analogy and translate it into media, you have to know who's telling you. And if the, uh, the Irish Times which I have fundamentally believe is, is a, a fine institution that tries to do the right thing. Uh, yes, we make mistakes, but we don't go out to make them and we don't go out to mislead people. And I know the commitment that uh, uh, my colleagues put in every day and the extraordinary hours that so many of them uh, put in. There's a level of dedication that makes no sense in terms of the financial return that any of them are getting. from. They, they do it because they love the trade and they love the nature of what they do and, and, and talking to people. And... We're going to end up in a situation if people don't uh, pay attention where we won't have uh, a functioning uh, journalism system. And if you look at local newspapers, uh, we're actually much further down the line in, in terms of the way in which they're being hollowed out. And I've had a few examples of this over the summer where uh, I was really struck talking to people in, in particular parts of rural Ireland where their relationship with the state has been significantly diminished because the local newspapers are no longer covering courts, no longer covering inquests, no longer covering planning meetings. So in the old days, if you went back 10 or 10 years even, uh, you'd, you'd know that Johnny, the little tug down the street, had been done by the cops and it was now getting three months in the joy or whatever it was, whereas none of that stuff is getting reported now. So if you're living in a local community, you've no idea what it is that state institutions are doing on behalf of the common wheel. And... 
in many ways, you know, local uh, newspaper reporters are the most valuable uh, people anywhere in the trade. And those people are becoming more and more exposed. They're, they're, they're uh, trying to fulfill different masters. And at the same time, people don't have the kind of time that was available previously to do the basics of journalism. And that just strikes me, just to finish that, and that's a really brilliant spirited defence of the importance of journalism. But when you see an awful lot of what's going on at present around Ireland in the response to immigrant centres been set up or the relocation of Ukrainians or international refugee applicants, that could that be partly down to a lack of information being provided at local level by the media? I think you could, yeah, there's there's undoubtedly some element uh, uh, to that. Um, equally, you could argue uh, that if all of us in um, uh, journalism were to examine the way in which we covered immigration over the last five or ten years, that there are things that we should perhaps have been more attuned to. Uh, I, I was very struck by the Kelly Harrington interview um, last year, I think, wasn't it, or the year before, where uh, she talked about the impact that it was having on the north inner city and um, it, it had suffered a rapid pylon uh, from people critical of her. And you know, Kelly, I don't know her, but you know, she's clearly not somebody who's wonderfully comfortable in the public arena. So she didn't come out. And I, I remember sending, uh, asking colleagues to, to go up the, uh, to, uh, to the, the north inner city to talk to people and to talk to people on the basis that she was representative of a view that they had. And we found it very difficult to get people to come out because there was, there was too much of a sense that nobody could say anything because if they were to say anything, then they were going to be pilloried as being far right or whatever else. And there's a difficulty with that because everybody who's far right is extreme on the issue of immigration, but everybody who's concerned about immigration isn't necessarily far right. And some of those uh, complaints in different areas, to different degrees, have greater uh, validity. Um, but there's equally no doubt that any place where this is happening, uh, that uh, that there are elements who are seeking to orchestrate it. And I would make one point, I mean, if you look at the number of burnings, those acts are acts of terrorism and should be treated under terrorism legislation. They're not uh, just ordinary crime. The people who are, at, who are using criminal action for a political purpose you may not know the answer to this because I don't know the answer, but have they had similar experiences in the six counties in dealing with uh, those seeking international protection or coming from Ukraine? Or have they been rapidly accepted into their local areas? No, they've different problems. I, I haven't heard of any burnings. Um, so that's very much a southern uh, creation. But there's no doubt uh, that there, there, there are issues. Uh, they, they have less of an issue because less people are coming to Northern Ireland seeking international protection. So in some ways, you know, it's like Scotland uh, taking the high moral ground in immigration, uh, saying yeah, that, you know, uh, send us your, your, your... Well then, a final point for common ground is, it does strike me as well as that there, are a, there is a large immigrant population that has arrived in Northern Ireland because of the EU. It's not as large as down here in the Republic, but they have had an immigrant population arrive. Is Northern Ireland going to get away, or is it getting away from the automatic assumption that a person's nationality is tied to religion? Given that here in the Republic, 
you know, religious observance has declined quite dramatically. It People is, but identifying themselves yeah. as being Catholic or whatever, those numbers have fallen. And even those who identify themselves as Catholic may not necessarily practice Catholic religion. But is it still going to be the case in the North that your defined religion, even if you don't necessarily observe it, is going to dictate your political preferences? Yeah, well, the, the troubles wasn't caused by differences over uh, theology and uh, transubstantiation. You know, this is the difference between religion and, and cultural identity and uh, whether you're a cultural Catholic or a cultural Protestant, you know. Um, and, you know, the old line about the guy being, uh, the, the Jew being uh, running into trouble in, in Belfast and uh, the guy looks at him and says, are you a Catholic Jew or a Protestant Jew? You know, so uh, that is simplistic in many ways, but there's no guarantee that just because religious observance is disappearing or has largely disappeared, uh, that that fundamentally alters uh, the dynamic. There of is the cultural identity. Of cultural identity. Um, uh, but th- there is a growing middle ground. Now, we've seen that middle ground go, you know, plus or minus. The Alliance certainly thinks this time that it is on a, it has a foundation that is only going to increase. And maybe that's the case. We'll see. Uh, but we've, you know, to an extent we've been here before in the 1970s with Oliver Napier, where there were moments where it looked as if uh, that, that uh, was going to be the case. And what happens so oftentimes is that in times of trial, the people go back into their bunkers. One must hope that do- that, that doesn't happen on this particular occasion because we've huge issues of identity and relationships and everything else that we need to focus on over the next uh, uh, 10, 15 years. And Stormont has to get to a point where it's functioning and where it is actually doing the basics because there is an argument among some people in Sinn Féin that the worse Stormont prepare, uh, functions, um, the greater the impetus there will be for a united Ireland. And that is true for a very large percentage of people uh, amongst the nationalist community in Northern Ireland. But the bit I think that people don't necessarily understand is that I think a majority, a large number of people in the South will have concerns about incorporating a dysfunctional Northern Ireland into uh, an All-Ireland um, cr- uh, political creation and that they would be much more likely to do it if they saw that there was a functioning system in Northern Ireland for five years or ten years and it looked like the place could run itself. You have loads of material to work on for the years to come. Mark Hennessy, thank you very much for joining me for Magnified. And that's it for today's Magnified with Matt Cooper. I hope you enjoyed it. A little bit different to our normal Magnified. There are loads of other interviews that you can go back and listen to if you've liked this or recommend it to a friend. Wherever it is you're listening to it, be Apple, Spotify or via the Go Loud app. And until the next time, from me, Matt Cooper, and again with thanks to Strategic Power Connect, have a good time. Go Loud presents Magnified with Matt Cooper. Sponsored by Strategic Power Connect. Renewable energy designed to suit your business needs. Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect. Go loud. Sounds better with us.